Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPICAN. I'm Jason Silverman, and I'm joined today by my co-host all the way from Columbus, Ohio, Dr. Jennifer Lee. How are you doing, Jen? Doing great. Hey, Jason. So as we're recording this, it is the first day of school for my two kids. I think your two kids had theirs last week or early yeah, this week? Yeah, they've been in two weeks now. Okay. So it's kind of an exciting time of year. Do you have a favorite memory of back to school time when you were a kid? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> so growing up, I didn't have, we didn't have a lot. So I actually dreaded going back to school because they always asked us to give like a favorite summary memory or like a vacation or something that you had done. But actually, we didn't get to go on vacation very much. And so every year I had this anxiety because I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? So eh, but you can make okay, up though. stuff. You played in the backyard and you found a frog. When you're young, there's always things you can make up. No? Oh, that's true. I mean, I'll say my girls went to school. So this is a brand new school for them. We've already had a bullying situation. Oh, no. It's, it's been a whole thing. But Avery, my youngest, was asked by her teacher, what is your favorite memory for the summer? Now, we went to Washington State. We went to the beach. We went here. We went here. We went like four vacations. And her favorite memory was playing in the sprinkler in the backyard <laughs> or going to the swimming pool, which is like right down the street from my house. Well, I mean, that's amazing that that's what she enjoys and she enjoys the simpler things in life. But then it always is a disappointment. Like, why did we spend that money and do all those things? But that's for your benefit because you have those special memories. And if somebody asked you, what's your favorite thing about summer vacation? You would mention those. Oh, yeah. Definitely seeing a whale. Hands down, seeing a whale. That is cool. So our kids... Every year, they send out this list of, here are all the school supplies you need to buy for your kids, you know, and so they have this system set up where you can order online, and they give you sort of a slightly discounted price for just buying it all in bulk. And the kids have been asking for weeks to dig into those boxes, because they're all excited about their new school supplies, like their pencils and erasers. And I remember that as a kid. I remember being kind of excited about your new pencils and erasers and your new, you know, folders and stacks of paper. And it's silly now thinking about it, but I remember being excited as a kid, so I, I totally understand it. But today, like they, your trapper keeper, yeah, oh, the trapper keeper. Uh, we have just totally aged ourselves for some of our audience members, but uh, they'll make a retro comeback. Maybe somebody is going to make like a trapper keeper for your iPad or something. <laughs> That's going to be a few, <laughs> that'll be your future business. But anyway, maybe we should talk a little bit about what we're going to hear about on today's episode. So we recently had an episode on central line management in children with intestinal failure. And today we're going to talk about another really important aspect of care for these infants and children, and that is enteral feeding. It can be really challenging to choose the right approach to feed any individual child based on you know anatomy and feeding tolerance. But as enteral autonomy is, of course, the ultimate goal, it's a really crucial part of ongoing care. And to help us navigate this area, we had our second international guest, Dr. Sue Prothero. Dr. Sue Prothero is a consultant pediatric gastroenterologist at Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. She's a recent president of the British Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, and previously served as the chair of their education committee. 
Importantly, she leads the Home Parenteral Nutrition Service and helped to set up a new nutrition and intestinal failure team in Birmingham. And we are delighted to be able to talk to her on this topic. On to the show. On to the show. So, Dr. Prothro, welcome to Bow Sounds. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you, Jason. It's absolutely brilliant to see you, and I'm really honoured and excited to be joining this. And hi, Jen, as well. It's lovely to see you both in the flesh. And you are officially our first guest that's the president of another pediatric GI society. So that's a, a fantastic crown that you get to wear. Well, that's that's very nice. I think I have our very talented webmaster, Quang Yang Lee, to thank for that because he linked up with you and told you a little bit about our weekly education series. So, and I've really enjoyed participating in that and persuaded him to do that. So this is this is the price I pay, I think, in uh, <laughs> linking up with you guys. Well, I, I think that's only fair. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're going to get started with what some of our guests find to be the most challenging question. And so for our listeners who don't know you, like us, actually, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Thank you, Jason. So I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist. And when I grew up in London, I always said, you know, I'm going to live by the sea. Okay. So I now live in the Midlands in, in Birmingham, which is the furthest away from the sea that you can get in England. But it's an amazing place. And I work at a, a fantastic institution called Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. Excellent. Thank you for that. And being in England, how far is it to the sea from where you are? It's not that far, actually. 80 miles or so. Oh, yeah. That's not, still very yeah, you can close. Go there. Compared yeah, to Columbus, yeah. Ohio, it takes me, I don't know, I think the closest beach is about seven hours. <laughs> yes. I can't complain, really, can I? No. The closest ocean to me is about an hour and a half by plane away. Oh, by so. plane. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, it's about, it's about 12 hours to drive to Vancouver from where. I am. Oh. So, so yeah, yeah. it's Pretty definitely bad. a longer distance away. So you don't have to do this open water swimming. I've just started doing that in the sea in Scotland because one of my kids lives up in Scotland. And every time I fly up there, we have to go out into the sea. Ooh. Wow. What part yeah. of Scotland? So she Where? lives in Edinburgh, uh, oh. which is actually on the, on the sea. Yeah. I, I uh, lived in Edinburgh for six you? months back in 2000. I oh, lived wow. just down Leith Walk. Yes. Yeah, brilliant um, place. Yeah, yeah, excellent city. Yeah, so I have the most expensive coat that I've ever bought, which is the the dry robe. You know, when you get out the sea, you need to put that on so you don't don't uh, go blue. So <laughs> that's all good. Uh, yes, come and visit in Edinburgh because I'm going to spend more time there. I think. Oh, oh that sounds lovely. Fantastic. Please yeah. come and visit. Absolutely, and when and, you've been to Birmingham, <laughs> and now you you also mentioned that at some point you'd like to head to the to the Rocky Mountains, and there is a bit of a tradition in sure. New Year's Day, yeah. depending on where you are in Canada, for people to do the polar bear dip. So you actually <laughs> will jump into a lake or the ocean on January first. Right? So okay, you can so bring be, your dry robe if you want yeah, to do I that. Can, yes, I my plane. I think it lands on January the third, though. That's the only problem. Uh, but, uh, too bad. Same. You can always do yeah. it I your own come. later. <laughs> I will I will come. Love to. So just for us to get to know you a little more, tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've read, listened to, or watched recently that you recommend. 
Thank you. Well, I'd thoroughly recommend if uh, you haven't seen this, it's the film Belfast. And it's an autobiographical film about Belfast in the 60s. And I'm a child of the 60s, so I love to see all the clothes and the costumes. But it's a really easy watch and it's a really feel-good film. But the topic isn't easy. It's a gritty topic about the conflict uh, in, with the community there. But personally, I've got a really soft spot for the folk of Belfast because I used to look after the province as a gastroenterologist I used to fly over with my nurse my dietitian every month but the film has got Van Morrison as the soundtrack do you know do you like Van Morrison he's sort of the Irish Bruce Springsteen isn't he and uh, I'm very fond of Van Morrison I actually sat next to him in a bar once in Dublin by mistake so that's my claim to fame for those of us that are pediatricians it's looking at the resilience of children and that's something that we see every day. And people say to us, well, how can you do pediatrics? And this is how we can do it, isn't it? Because the children just bounce back from illness and difficult times and they're they're so resilient. And uh, it's looking at the multi-generational families in Belfast as well. So there's an awful lot of tragedy going on in the world. And I think we're just looking at the moment, aren't we, that families and children will be resilient and we can have dialogue, diplomacy, compromise and... uh, better outcomes uh so i think this film kind of has it all in it but it makes you feel good at the end so so do do get to watch it and it's in black and white okay might have to check that out everyone everyone likes a bit of redemption in in (laughs) what they're watching right yeah (laughs) that's great so maybe we'll switch gears and and talk about our main topic of intestinal failure today and obviously intestinal failure it's a complex topic with lots of different components to quality care within the context of intestinal rehabilitation teams, uh, ranging from surgical management, optimizing parenteral nutrition, central line care, and more. But today we're going to focus on the management of enteral nutrition in infants and older children with intestinal failure. And maybe we can start with, what is your initial approach to enteral feeding in infants with intestinal failure, such as, you know, preferred feeding source, when to start feeding, things like that? Thank you. So, when, when I'm teaching our trainees, I, as, as with every item in medicine, so we go for a systematic approach and we do a really thorough assessment as a patient. And then the next bit that I'm, I'm really encouraging the trainees to learn is to see the future. So I really like the plan. And they always talk about Dr. Prothero wants a plan. So they can't come to me unless, you know, they've done the assessment and they have the plan. So that's not a bad start to any problem in life. So in Birmingham, we've, we've just started a new team. Um, I know a lot of, lot of units do have the multidisciplinary team, but our, our nutrition team is very heavily based on having very good IF dietitians, uh, PN pharmacists, specialized PN nutrition nurses, and they do the clever bits. And we always have a fellow or trainee or two and the, and the consultants there just to just to kind of add on bits that we can. But, you know, that, that approach from that team in, in the UK is, is to see every child on day one of parental nutrition. So we don't have the IF rehab centres. Every region will have a, a central team and we will see all comers. And when they start on parental nutrition, the team will be advising on their enteral feeds as well. So um, 
I think that approach gives us a broad view of those who are going to do well and those who aren't going to do well. And then we'll, we'll go back to the, the plan is that we're going to try and predict the future and see uh, which children are going to be short term, medium term or long term people on parental nutrition. Uh, we're going to look at risk factors that they might have or they might develop. And I think importantly, we communicate as a team with the family so that if they are going to be on home parental nutrition, they get to know the team really from day one or two and get those key relationships going. And of course, communicating with the home team, as we call it. So that might be the oncologist, it might be the liver transplant doctor, the intensive care doctor, the surgeons or whatever. So uh, we have that approach and we have the, the goals of our enteral feeding, of course, are to get the child off parental nutrition. So we're going to do what I call the four A's, which is the promoting the adaptation and achieving autonomy from parental nutrition. We're going to achieve normal growth and development and avoid complications. So we kind of come at it with that assessment. And, you know, every child's anatomy is different. So the approach to feeding might depend on what bowel they have left. It's not, I'm not interested in what the surgeon has thrown away in the bin. I want to know they got the jejunum, have they got the ileum, have they got the IC valve, have they got the colon, is the bowel of good quality, have there been lots of anastomosis, that kind of thing, am I going to predict some dysmotility? So we get that assessment done and then, you know, we start thinking of the feed after that. So um, I think we're very keen, as you know, to work with the surgeon. So we would get the surgeons to start the feed as soon as possible, as soon as the ileus is gone, as soon as there isn't a concern about necrotizing enterocolitis. So minimal feeds will, will start as soon as possible. We don't ever use the term total parental nutrition. I don't think anyone does anymore, but the odd person will slip that one in. So always we're trying to give some feed. I think that was really helpful. So it sounds like the initial approach is really to have a multidisciplinary team with everybody involved and talking about enteral nutrition from the beginning um, yeah. in coordination with the surgeons. And then you had mentioned wanting to do this as soon as possible. Do you have a strategy as far as oral feeds or gastrostomy feeds or what strategy do you typically take whenever you start that feeding? Sure. So we're going to look for physiological feeding as much as possible. So if, if the child could breastfeed, that, that's always the preference. And I always say that's the job of the surgeon. His job is to do the plumbing and his job is to counsel the parents before the baby's born and, and get mum to breastfeed. The evidence is very clear that breast is best and uh, clearly that is the feed of choice but every feed has got to be tolerated and if the baby has had an extensive resection for example or has a congenital enteropathy then unfortunately breast milk isn't always tolerated the child may have lactose intolerance so then we've got to start thinking about the patient again and because every baby is different we're going to sort of have a little think about what might be best for that that baby. So I guess the principles that we, we go by is, is looking for the most complex feed that we think the baby will tolerate because we believe the more complex the formula or feed that the baby has, the more likely we are to promote adaptation. And of course, we're all looking for a feed that's as similar to breast milk as possible. So if we've had a baby with a very small bowel resection, so a baby that's had a volvulus, for example, we might go for a normal infant formula if, if the mother isn't, isn't able to provide breast milk. Uh, it might be low lactose, whole protein 
normal infant formula. But a lot of these children who are on parental nutrition for a while have had a major resection and, and therefore they're going to have malabsorption due to rapid transit and reduced surface area. So we're going to have to have a think about the components. We, we have a little think about the protein and the fat and the carbohydrate in the feed. So certainly in the UK, and it's our unit's preference to go for a hydrolysate feed, and we would prefer that. That's good for gastric emptying. And importantly, the osmolality of a protein hydrolysate is about 300, 350 milliosmoles per kilo. And a free amino acid feed or oligopeptide feed puts the osmolality up, and that often promotes an osmotic diarrhea. So we'd always try to give uh, a protein hydrolysate unless of course we've got really good evidence of insensitivity to the protein hydrolysate and then we may well use a more broken down feed uh, extensively hydrolyzed amino acid feed so that that's our protein source and then you know we look at the fat source now we know that long chain fat in the feed is better at promoting adaptation it has the essential fatty acids omega-3 for brain development for infants so but again, if you have a very short surface area, then you may have fat malabsorption. So we measure fat in the stools as part of our assessment of tolerance. We'll, we'll often choose a proprietary feed that has got some medium chain triglycerides, MCT, which is directly absorbed. And that's very good if you've got a touch of liver disease or, or pancreatic insufficiency. So that's that's a, a nice mix, say 50% MCT in a feed. Uh, and then, then we're looking at the carbohydrate. We've already said that if you've had an extensive resection, you haven't got enough duodenal disaccharidases, enough lactase to, to split the lactose. So often we'll choose a feed with a glucose polymer. We wouldn't want a monosaccharide like glucose. So we're, we're picking up a feed that is maybe a proprietary feed with a low osmolality as possible. And so we in the UK go for the partially hydrolyzed feed. In Birmingham, we quite like the modular feeding system because on each day we will look at the feed tolerance. And if we can't get a feed off the shelf for that baby, then we will add the ingredients in separately. So we might, for example, have three or four carbohydrate sources, some fructose, a little bit of lactose, a little bit of glucose polymer mixed with the mix of whey protein, for example, or hydrolyzed protein and fat that, that we think is best for that baby. And we can add in ingredients one at a time to get the best tolerance. That's a really great uh, initial approach. I think the key takeaways there that I'm really glad that you emphasized, obviously, that you know breast is best and mother's milk when available and tolerated is the initial go-to. And then as complex as possible to promote adaptation, again, as the infant can tolerate. And it's really nice that you have as much of a modular capabilities as you have to really customize the infant's formula. Not every center will have the capability of getting down to individual ingredients, but putting your thinking cap on and trying to understand what the macronutrient challenge is and try to find the formula that has the best fit and the lowest osmolality to, to fit that bill, I think, is a great approach. And it, it needs the uh, expertise of very skilled dietitians. So we are really fortunate that we have, you know, the best intestinal failure dietitians who have a wealth of experience over 20, 30 years. Uh, and that makes all the difference. They're constantly challenging us to see is the feed tolerated? We go back to the charts every day. We're looking at the baby's weight gain. We're looking at their hydration status. We're looking at stool biochemistry, stool fat. And so, you know, 
the important thing is is just having the systematic approach that I mentioned before. And, uh, you know, the top tips to avoid feed intolerance, I think is really important. I do love top tips. So, you know, it's, it's, as we say, it's one change at a time. If you're going to change the feed, if you're going to change the volume or you're going to change the concentration of the feed, over-aggressive feeding is not going to work. So if it doesn't work, just sit back and stay the same, take one step back and then try again. Don't give up. I think people always say this, this is a marathon and it's not a sprint, isn't it? Uh, and that's a very good philosophy. In um, life and in intestinal failure. Don't give up, come with a plan. Yeah, that's right. So I did have a comment. I think one of the opportunities I had in my fellowship was actually to spend a half of a day in our formula room working on mixing some of those complex formulas. And I actually, for any fellow who's listening or anyone who has the opportunity, highly recommend it. It was really eye-opening and I think it allowed me to have a better appreciation of what we may be asking some of our parents to do if they go home and have these mixtures. But also it's kind of fun. It's like a real life chemistry lab and scales and all the things. And so definitely highly recommend that. So I did want to take a step backward, actually, just for a minute. And we've really dived into this topic of intestinal failure. But do you mind going back and telling us a little bit about how you first developed that interest in intestinal failure as a specialty? Sure. Well, I trained in Bristol and I was really lucky because they said, oh, there's a grant available in the fifth year. And, you know, that's going to sponsor an original research project. So I put together this project and I was really keen to go to Africa and explore medicine there. And I managed to pull this off and got a grant from the Medical Research Council in, in London. And they gave me a grant to go and investigate surveillance of acute or chronic malnutrition in a population of children in Tumu Tumu Hospital, which is sort of halfway up Mount Kenya. And in those days, the med school was not so structured. So I managed to go for about six months, which was great. I don't think they'd noticed I'd gone. But uh, I, I was struck with how short-term intestinal failure in that, in that population could be fatal, but how easy it could be to turn it round. And, and my project was looking at anthropometry and identifying those infants that were at risk and then targeting strategies for the outreach nursing team to bring those children who looked at risk back to the centre. So I think that probably kick-started my interest in nutritional management of disease. And uh, I was really lucky enough to do my research post in the liver unit at Birmingham Children's Hospital under the great Professor Deirdre Kelly, looking at amino acid metabolism with stabilized totes and indirect calorimetry. That was the time that the, the bowel transplant program was starting about 30 years ago. And we were seeing a lot of children coming in for assessment who sadly only had a few months to live. And I would go back over what had been happening with those children and see how there might have been, in those days, missed opportunities for intervention, for avoiding sepsis and promoting adaptation. And I really enjoyed the management of those infants, the complexity. And it was really rewarding seeing what a satisfying team approach could be brought to those families, even though some of those babies were quite ill. And it made me see that every child was different with intestinal failure. And that, I think, is the art to gastroenterology. It's, it's less protocol-driven than hepatology. So although I, I trained as a hepatologist, I think I saw my, my niche was to go into gastroenterology. So I moved sideways, and it, it was lucky that the, the team there was open to train me in gastroenterology as well. 
And I think probably looking at the variation in healthcare in England got me thinking. And I think that got me interested in the job that I do at the moment, which is I have a commissioning job where I work for NHS England in promoting equity to access to every centre that we have in England for specialised medicine and driving forward improvement through outcome-based quality standards. So I think that, that that set me on the road to being a gastroenterologist, but also my interest in commissioning of specialised services, which I'm currently doing at the moment. Wow, that's a really great origin story in terms of how you very organically developed your interest in nutrition and, and sort of transitioned over to intestinal failure. It makes a lot of sense when you lay it out as a, as a story like that. If you don't mind, I'm just going to circle back a little bit when we talked a bit about the infant nutrition approach. You mentioned your four A's. As part of your four A's, you mentioned the goal of intestinal adaptation. And, and obviously, for any of us that work in intestinal failure, we're well aware of what that means. For our listeners that are perhaps pediatric residents or GI fellows just starting out, would you mind just kind of defining that or explaining what we mean when we talk about intestinal adaptation? Sure. So every baby that's born won't have been feeding. And the process of adaptation happens as soon as that healthy infant starts feeding. So the, the enterocytes will become upregulated and brush border proteins will become active for absorption and, and the hormonal response to feeding will, will start. So adaptation is happening in every healthy infant. But when we talk about adaptation in short bowel syndrome, what we're doing is looking for, if you like, an enhanced adaptation. So we want that normal upregulation of brush border function to happen. But we also want the luminal contents, which is the feed, as well as enzymes from the pancreas and the gastric juices to work on the intestine and make it work a little bit harder because it knows it's been shortened. So the, the hormonal feedback loop will often enhance that process of adaptation. So the villi will become longer, the actual epithelium will become thicker, the crypts will become deeper, and the bowel will lengthen and dilate in response to having feed in the lumen. And if there isn't feed in the lumen, then there won't be that process of adaptation. And there might even be the opposite, which is atrophy. And the lining of the intestine will not be so healthy. It may become more permeable. And that gut barrier that we rely on to stop proteins leaking through may not be quite as robust if that bowel hasn't adapted and had feed in it. And so that gut barrier function is, is crucially important for maintaining integrity of the bowel perhaps preventing translocation or sepsis, and getting that liver-gut axis cross-talk right. So upregulating bile acids is really important. That won't happen if you haven't got feed in the bowel. And we're looking also for favorable microbiome these days. We want the microbiome to be as natural as possible. We want that microbiome to be one that shifts the homeostasis, if you like, to upregulation of that infant's immune system and down regulation of inflammatory cytokines. That's really relevant when it comes to some of the problems that these babies can have, which is intestinal failure-associated liver disease, if the inflammatory state is upregulated in that baby. And they're very prone in the first six weeks of life, if they get sepsis, to get cholestasis and intestinal failure-associated liver disease. So in our GI program, we haven't had many babies that have gone forward for bowel transplants, but we have had a few. And if we look back 
we tried to see what factors were at play there that that made those infants not be able to survive long-term on home parental nutrition. And the only one factor we found in common that those babies were unfeedable for over six or eight weeks. And they were unfeedable because they had strictures or surgery that the surgeon couldn't fix or there was a really difficult operation where the bowel couldn't be joined satisfactorily. So that's a huge risk factor in the outcome many years later of not being able to establish that enteropathic circulation. And of course, not being able to promote adaptation in the normal way. No, I think that's very helpful. I think intestinal adaptation is one of those things that make our bodies just so incredible, right? Like we remove parts of the bowel and we're able to grow our bowel and it adapts to perform functions that maybe it couldn't do before. I am interested a little bit, if we go back to the feeding strategy, there's some discussion about keeping the feeds as physiologic as we can. And I know that there's also some literature about continuous feeds versus bolus feeds when it comes to adaptation. Do you mind touching on that a little bit and what the pros and cons of each approach may be? Thank you for mentioning that. So we're trying to mimic normal feeding and we're trying to get that bond with the mum and the infant and we're trying to have oral breastfeeding as much as possible. If we can't, then it's for bottle feeding and it's best that that mum does the feeding. So we get the mums in the hospital all the time to avoid the mechanistic feeding that might come from a carer or nurse who's not used to that infant. You know, the oral feeding will promote the EGF production from the saliva. But if for whatever reason that infant isn't able to bottle feed, maybe they're born preemie or other reasons, then we tend to prefer a combination of bolus feeds, bottle or nasogastric tube feeding in combination with what I call continuous rate enteral nutrition, which is when the feed goes down the nasogastric tube as a slow infusion. And there are advantages to going for all bottle or bolus feeds because when the amino acids and the long chain fat hit the intestine, that promotes the hormonal IGF-1 insulin response. And that's how infants grow. That's how they get their linear growth. And that promotes adaptation. Uh, That also is really good because after a feed, your peristalsis will slow down. That gives more time for the feed to remain in the intestine. But if you have ultra short bowel or rapid transit, then that infant might not be able to cope with the bonus feeds, particularly if they've got dysmotility. So infants with gastroschisis, for example, might have foregut dysmotility and vomiting, and you just can't get the volumes in with bonus feeds or there might be rapid transit and you get diarrhea. So that's when you would introduce the continuous rate enteral nutrition. So there's some nice data that shows that infants with osmotic diarrhea will get better weight gain and, and less diarrhea if you give the feed in continuously. And so that's often the combination we do when there's been a significant bowel resection. You might get less intestinal hurry, less vomiting. And of course, you're saturating the brush border proteins over a period of 12 hours if you give the feed over 12 hours. So you've got much more time, more contact the feed has with the bowel wall, the more time for absorption. than, for example, if you just give a bottled feed and the contact time for that feed is, is maybe much less. When you give the feed continuously, you might have better water absorption, better electrolyte absorption as well. So that's where you can see better weight gain, even though you'd rather not give non-bonus feeds or non-bottle feeds. There is some data that suggests the gallbladder doesn't empty as well when you give feeds continuously. But in practice, if we see babies with jaundice or cholestasis and we get more feed in, 
we do see resolution of jaundice on children on continuous rate feed. So I think that uh, we shouldn't worry about making cholestasis worse with continuous feed. Um, again, it's all, all a compromise. So we'd go for bottle feeding in the day if we can and the, the nighttime infusion of the continuous rate enteral feeds. Thanks very much for the explanation, because I, certainly my brain always works best with the why question answered. Like, why are we doing it this way? Why is it just because we prefer it? Is it just preference? And I think laying out the physiologic underpinnings and exactly what types of responses, hormonal or mechanical or motility that we're aiming for makes a lot of sense. And it helped both our trainees and other physicians to know what they're doing, but it also helps in our explaining to families about why we're suggesting varying approaches. So that's really helpful. You mentioned about oral feeding, obviously with breastfeeding, if possible, bottle feeding, if not. And so this is a bit of a follow-up question, but maybe you can comment on some of the factors that can contribute to the development of oral or feeding aversion in children with intestinal failure, which is a pretty important negative outcome that we sometimes deal with, and, and how some of those factors could be avoided or mitigated. Yes, yeah, so oral aversion is sadly fairly common in infants who have intestinal failure. And as with many things, avoiding it is much better than trying to treat it because it is, is stressful for the families and it does reduce the quality of life and the ability of the infant to join in normal social meals at home. And one thing that we've been using recently is the tetaglutide or GLP-2 analogue. And it's really clear that the children that do well with that strategy are those that will eat and drink uh, a normal diet and they will increase the intake of food and fluid when they have the treatment and they do a, a lot better. You know, So it's children, not those ones on tetraglutide, but they all do better if they can control their own appetite. So uh, there's a number of reasons why that happens. I think you know a lot of people split that down into three reasons. I've got four reasons, and I, <laughs> uh, I think one reason people forget is is appetite regulation, and that's so important that uh, you need to feed an infant when they're hungry, and you mustn't force them to feed in a mechanistic way just because the chart says they have three hourly bottle feeds, and they they must experience that satiety after the feed, and they must experience the hunger and if we do bolus feed or tube feed infants then unfortunately we will lose the appetite regulation and then they may get coercively fed or force fed if they're not not wanting to feed so that's so important to realize that sometimes small babies have a small appetite and we shouldn't be aiming for certain volumes we should just be aiming to demand feed that infant as naturally as possible but if we take a step back, we, we often deal with a lot of premiers and premiers have oromotor dysfunction and they have difficulty coordinating their breathing, sucking and swallowing reflexes. So they might not be maturationally ready to bottle feed very well and they might have unpleasant or aversive experiences. So they're more likely to have reflux and that's unpleasant. If you've got syringes going in the mouth with the medication, the suction catheter and the passage of the nasogastric tube are all unpleasant or noxious experiences for that child. So they might develop oral or palatal hypersensitivity. And that's when something that isn't noxious goes in the mouth, such as the bottle or the spoon that the infants will gag or retch, or even gag and retch at the sight of a bottle or the smell of food. And that's the sensory response that comes on in those who have the oromotor problems. And the sensory issues are 
really difficult once they start to happen. And that, you know, precludes children enjoying the experience of eating as well. And of course, this is very stressful for the mother or the carer when their child has the sensory aversion to feeding. Maybe they turn their head away from the bottle or they won't entertain new foods or textures or, or weaning in the normal way. So th those factors, unfortunately, are common to many, many children with intestinal failure. And that's why we try and promote as normal feeding as possible. And we're less likely to put down a nasogastric tube early on in that child's life. It's quite difficult to treat once it happens, but the process of treating it is just stepping back and trying to relax and help the families relax and a program of desensitization, which often involves tactile or play, which can be messy play, not starting with the mouth, but starting with maybe baby massage and then working up to uh, pleasant experiences around the mouth for that baby and being aware that some babies who breastfed will never bottle feed. And that's not a problem because they can go straight from the breast to maybe a, a soft spouty beaker and taste and textures have got to be bite and dissolve. So maybe they'll completely bypass the, the lumpy food on the spoon and go to, to finger food or baby leg weaning so that the baby's in charge of the feeding and, and if they have sensory aversion, they're less likely to have those aversive experiences. That's really helpful. And like so many things in medicine, prevention is much more effective than cure in a lot of these instances, for sure. So, Dr. Prathara, that was a very, very helpful overview for us. I'd like to talk a little bit about specifics. And you mentioned that some of your approaches to feeding may actually be dependent on the child's anatomy and the surgeries that they have had. And so many, if not most, infants with intestinal failure will spend at least some time with an ostomy. So what is your approach to mucus fistula refeeding? And when should we consider this strategy and when should we abandon it? So many surgeons will cite a stoma when the child has had their initial bowel surgery, when they've had necrotizing enterocolitis, for example, or multiple atresias, for example. And they would prefer not to go back and join the stoma up straight away. Um, the surgeons always have good reasons in our institution why they want to wait as long as possible. And that's where the gastroenterologist has to do the negotiation because, of course, we would like to establish the bowel continuity as soon as possible. So then that's for where you have to get on with your surgeon and you have to meet in the middle. But it's a really useful tactic while you're waiting for the surgeon to close the stoma because what you can do is get access to the whole of the intestine. So often you've got the colon, the distal bowel that's defunctioned, and you can collect the output from the proximal bowel, the chyme, and you can recycle that in a catheter down into the distal bowel. And that is really handy because uh, the distal bowel will normally absorb the fluid, the electrolytes, and maybe some of the calories from the fermented carbohydrates, the short-chain fatty acids in the colon, which can be a really useful calorie source. And I had one patient who actually weaned off parental nutrition by that recycling route who'd had a very difficult operation, had what's called a frozen abdomen, where the surgeon said there were so many adhesions, he just couldn't find the intestine, he thought, when he went in. So that child had to wait until it calmed down. These adhesions can improve with time. And there's some nice data with reviews of papers that shows that it can help you wean your parental nutrition down, prevent the children getting renal insufficiency from dehydration, which can be a problem. And when it works, it works well. It needs quite a skilled nursing team to do it. And it means that the child is normally in hospital. We thought about sending children home with recycling and it's not been too easy. 
Although there is a commercial product now that we can get in the UK, which is a little pump, which collects the fluid and delivers it back into the distal limb. And I think we'll watch that eagerly to see how adult patients get on with that. But that does mean that adult patients can go home and do their own recycling at home. Recycling doesn't always carry on and on. Often that sto- distal stoma will retract or become sore, leak, and that can cause excoriation to the skin and a quite a poor quality of life. So as time goes by, sometimes you're not able to sustain recycling. Or if you've got a very short colon, all you'll do is put the chyme in the very short colon and give that child a sore bottom. So it's not always successful. But the surgeons like it because they say that it will, if you like, get the colon ready, stop it atrophying, get it ready for joining up, so they say. And also it may be less likely to stricture up if you're using the colon. And if there is a size mismatch from the proximal bowel to the distal bowel, which is quite hard to join up, they do say that that might be a bit better if you've been using the colon. So it's a good measure, but in my experience, it's often time limited. When we talk about transitions in feeding, obviously later in infancy, we're interested in making those transitions to adding complementary foods. And for children with intestinal failure, with altered anatomy, with or without a stoma, there can be that extra level of considerations in terms of choosing which complementary foods to introduce or how to go about that introduction. We may have opinions about fiber and types of fiber, yes or no. Can you comment a little bit about where your approach is in in navigating that transition to to adding complementary foods in older infants? Yes, of course. So I'm a great advocate for starting complementary foods as early as possible and making sure that child is developmentally uh, progressed enough to actually accept the weaning food. So they've got really good head control and they often got good trunk control as well. And I think it's important with the, the infants with intestinal failure that we start with one new food at a time because Although we don't see protein sensitization that much, we do see it more than in in healthy children. So we would always start with a simple food. I quite like a starchy carbohydrate, so like a rice or banana or potato, sweet potato for babies. I really like meat as a weaning food, so when that's pureed up, because often that's tasty and it's quite well tolerated. And I think it's really important not to give a baby really untasty or bland food when they've got intestinal failure. I think the children have got to be excited by the food. And often mothers like to give their babies sweet food or pouches of fruit puree, and these are not always very good because they may promote osmotic diarrhea. So I'm always asking the mums to go for savoury foods. And I think that we get a bit worried about giving eggs and fish, but if we try it one at a time and it's not a particularly atopic baby, then some babies can do quite well with fish and eggs in their diet. And they often will tolerate the lactose that's in yogurts and cheese. So while they might be on a lactose-free formula, it doesn't mean that we necessarily need to keep them completely milk-free. We're keen on giving family food as much as possible, where some units you'll find they'll be automatically milk, egg, wheat, and soy-free. But we would much rather, if we can, get them on family foods if we can. Now, fibre is something that, that, just like with IBS, it, it can be your friend or it cannot be your friend. And we all know that soluble fibre can be quite good. It can bulk the stool up and make the transit less rapid, less diarrhea. So that's where I love the, the sort of natural fibre that you've got in, say, bananas, if you want a sweet food or sweet potato. 
I think you have to be a little bit careful of the uh, fructo-oligosaccharides, the, you know, the onions and the tomatoes and the indigestible fiber, because in my experience, they all often promote diarrhea and cramp. And, you know, in the second part of the first year of life, when bacterial overgrowth can be a problem, then you get too much fermentation and that can lead to bacterial overgrowth lactic acidosis if you're not careful. So that can be a problem, of course, with your simple carbohydrates as well. So that's why we wouldn't offer too much fruit or sweet food because of the problem of fermentation, which can happen, you know, in the lower part of the small bowel with the, the clonic organisms are there if there's no icy bowel, or you can get the fermentation in, in the colon as well. We are looking at using blended diets. I think probably you're doing that as well in America. And uh, we're, we're, we've been very cautious in England about that. But, you know, if a child isn't able to feed orally and has a gastrostomy, then in theory, a blended diet might be suitable from six months or so of age. And, you know, often using the family food that the, the child likes so that they've got the taste of the food instead of the, the liquid milk formula in their, in their mouth. If they reflux a bit, it's, you know, it's often nicer to have that taste of family food than a sort of milky formula in their mouth. That kind of helps us move to our next question, which is how does your approach change for older children and adolescents with intestinal failure as they and their families navigate oral and enteral feeds? So again, I like the children to enjoy the family food because it's so important to sit down at the table and eat with their parents and their brothers and sisters and eat the food that their family eats. But of course, that's within the limits of the diet that should be tolerated and, and enjoyable. I think starting with drinks is really important because often that's the area that we have to give the most advice on. So kids love sweet drinks. They love sugary drinks. We really want the child to appreciate drinking water or even drinking an electrolyte solution such as Diarolite from an early age. And we do try and encourage that. I've got one child who used to be on PN seven nights a week and she's now on two nights a week on tetaglutide is because she loves drinking an electrolyte solution and her body needs it because she needs that absorption of fluid and she'll also drink a formula but she'll also eat her family food and you know as a treat once a week she's allowed a sugary soda drink but we steer well clear of sugary drinks and sodas so we often start talking about drinks if we can get the children drinking the formulas and the water and the electrolyte solutions I think that's that's really good. I often go for not three meals a day, but six meals a day. So we spread it out so the children will have a snack mid-morning at school and a snack in the afternoon at school and spread their calorie intake out because it, it just makes sense that they can't cope with large meals. And we like the healthy family food, so we're going away from the fast food with the tomato sauces and the preservatives and the foods that are not very digestible, you know, like the onions and the peppers and things and uh, you know getting those kids to enjoy some some savory food again I love meat and I like fish and I like eggs in in the diet of children as long as they tolerate them well and having the complex carbohydrates they can have chips potatoes the vegetables and the carrots but it's steering clear of the simple sugars and you know the sweet snacks which we know can promote fermentation which gives you intestinal hurry crampy tummy ache diarrhea back to overgrowth. I really I like that approach because I think, as you mentioned, the taste component is so important. And often these children will have a complete disruption in their typical lifestyle. So meals are something that's so central to a lot of families. And I really like that approach of working with the child and the family. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like also the idea of getting out 
in front of something that you can already identify as a looming problem with the beverages. So sort of planning ahead for that transition and getting them used to the beverages that you want them to be taking down the road. Yeah. And there's one thing that we often forget about, I often forget about, is as they get older, some kids like cola, they like tea, they like coffee. And if they've had a terminal islet resection and they have fat malabsorption, they are at risk of oxalate kidney stones and the babies are at risk of nephrocalcinosis. And I found that in our population of children with congenital tufting enteropathy who have fat malabsorption. I think that's well recognized in, in that group. And so it's kind of giving them a healthy outlook for when they're a little bit older that they, you know, don't get into drinking loads of tea and coffee and cola. And unfortunately, chocolate, these really nice things that we love, the, the tea, coffee and the chocolate. And, and, you know, fortunately, they don't eat too much rhubarb and strawberries, but they might like them because getting oxalate renal stones or nephrocalcinosis is really difficult once they're there. They're really difficult to get rid of. And renal insufficiency from dehydration can be an issue in those with short bowel syndrome. So I think it's, it's setting them up for a, a good life because uh, we know early on you haven't got a terminal ileum. You're going to have to have vitamin B12 injections when you come off parental nutrition, probably. And we're going to ask you to steer clear of these, these foods because you wouldn't think unless you thought a family wouldn't instinctively avoid these foods or drinks. Yeah, that's a good tip because you're right. Those are foods that especially when we're really focused on our infants and young children, you don't necessarily think about those high oxalate foods and, and the impact that those can have later on. I'm going to make a little bit of a transition here. We've been mostly talking about infants and children with intestinal failure diagnosed in infancy. But I know in our communication before getting on the podcast today that you've developed an interest in the nutritional management of patients where they've developed intestinal failure by way of having a severe neurodisability and dystonia leading to severe gut dysmotility. And that's the basis of their intestinal failure. And you've developed an interest in the nutritional management of those children. Can you speak a little bit more about that unique population? Sure, thank you. So we know that in our home PM population in England, about one in 12 are children with acquired intestinal failure in, in individuals in their second decade of life who have a severe neurodisabling condition. And this is a relatively new area that we didn't see perhaps a decade ago. And I think this is a celebration of the improved survival of children who have severe neurodisability, that they are remaining reasonably well in, into their second decade. And these are children who are usually non-ambulant, they're non-verbal, they've got a, a severe properly an undefined neurodisability, it might be a neurometabolic disorder. This is not a child, you know, with cerebral palsy necessarily, with hemiplegia, for example. And they often have dystonia as part of their neurodisability. And a decline in their gut function manifest by dysmotility uh, is often triggered by an event. So often they've been unwell, they might have had an operation, they might have had spinal surgery, they might have had a baclofen pump put in, and they might get repeated episodes of respiratory infection. And every time they get better, their gut function is just that little bit worse. And we've we've noticed this population because they're coming to us as regional gastroenterologists and our colleagues in the community and our neurodisability colleagues are asking us for help because they're taken a little bit by surprise 
And the families that are going through a really difficult time are also really not very prepared for this as something that may happen. And we've tried to examine all of the children in the country and look at the risk factors for developing this. And, and to do that, you've got to have a definition. So we've, we've made our own definition of what we mean, and we've called it feed-induced dystonia because these children get symptoms at the time of feeding or just after the feeding. And that might be manifest as dysmotility, so it might be retching, it might be bilious aspirates from their gastrostomies, they're usually gastrostomy-fed. It might be sweating or salivation, sort of vagal symptoms, and just general distress as well. And that is directly associated with feeding when you've excluded all other causes. So, for example, it has to be made by someone who's like a gastroenterologist who could assess that child in combination with their neurodisability consultant. So, we're making sure, for example, they've not got esophagitis, so they might need some investigations. We're making sure they haven't got a sublux tip and they're they are experiencing pain from that. We're making sure they haven't got a blocked intracranial shunt. So you've got to make sure you're ruling out all other confounding factors. And we're going through a process at the moment where we're looking at the appropriateness of what you would do to make a diagnosis, how to explain it to the family, looking at the ethics of artificial nutrition support and how to manage these children. And because there isn't enough evidence, we're, we've got a multi-professional group doing one of these voting processes, which is a new process called RAND, which is working really well for this to get a systematic approach. And we want this to be useful for families. And we want this to be useful for our colleagues, perhaps who are working in the community, maybe not seeing as much of it as, as we do in the large children's hospitals, because we've got 30 or so children that we're we're managing, whereas in, in smaller centres, they, they might not see quite so many children. And we're working closely with our colleagues in, in palliative care because some of these children have life-limiting conditions. And I think it's really important to talk about the child within the family because these families are going through a very difficult pathway and we're having to look at how much autonomy they have, how much consent and choice they have for which route of feeding they might go down, looking at the principles of beneficence that we want to just offer the best outcome for the child, often within the limited resources that we've got. So the principles of justice, and maybe it's not right for that family to have the burden of parental nutrition if there's lots of other competing demands on that family. So uh, it's looking at how a team would uh, approach the diagnosis, support the family, and uh, we are developing some top tips or management strategies that we just I guess we just worked it out along the way using our principles that we have of how to feed children with pseudo-obstruction and, and how to feed children with dysmotility and oral aversion. And we're bringing in all those sorts of skills that, that we've learned to, to try and offer the best quality of life, which is what, what the aim of the project is to do. So we're giving support for the families. We might give permissive feeding when they have an episode of what looks like pseudo-obstruction and feed via the jejunal route. So they're often having a gastro-jejunal tube and these children often do suit the blended diet or a commercial feed that, that might be better suited. And we're also using some of the anti-dystonia medications or the analgesia or anti-emetics that are off-license that are a little bit outside our normal farm pharmacopoeia as, as, as uh, gastroenterologists. So trying to help children who have 
really unpleasant retching or hypersalivation, promotility agents such as azithromycin and antibiotics, and the, the sort of sedation-type medicine that will, will allow those children to be comfortable, such as clonidine and gabapentin and some of the antihistamines that we, that we do use for functional GI disorders. I think what I love about that approach is that you're really focused on the quality of life again, and I'd be really interested to see more about that. So please feel free to share it our way when, when you have all of that together, and we'd be happy to you know, follow up on that. Sure. Yeah, we're hoping to get that out to people because um, it, it's been a, a passion of mine for four years. And uh, I think in some ways, it's a shame it's dragged on so long. But in some ways, actually, the product will be better because our knowledge and understanding of where these families are and how to work with the families is, is much better than where we were a few few years ago. And, and often giving those families the choice along that difficult journey of what's best for their child. And I think that that approach of caring for patients and families really should be taken for every patient interaction that we have is that shared decision-making model. And so, yeah, I'd be really interested to see that. And maybe we can put it in the link to that in the share notes if it's available in the show notes. Sure. We're hoping it'll be out this year. It'll be a product of the Bisfagan Nutrition Working Group. Oh, so. excellent. So looking back on your career thus far, which has been just so impressive, what has been the most valuable advice that you have received and what advice do you have for our listeners? Thank you. So someone said to me, just choose what you're good at doing. Choose what those opportunities that uh, you, you want to do and don't take on everything. And that's very simple advice, but I think that was really good advice at the time. And I, I probably wasn't very good at doing that because uh if I think back when I was a consultant, I think my youngest was about four and someone said, so are you going to be a doctor like your mummy? And she said, no, when I grow up, I'm going to be a proper mummy. So I think that <laughs> says it all. And I think that since I've been in charge of the college training committee a few years back for all of our national specialty trainees, I'm loving to give lots of advice to trainees because I probably didn't get as much advice as I should have done, or maybe I just didn't really listen. So I, I'm very proud that I think I've probably mentored virtually every specialty gastroenterologist in every centre, either because they've trained in Birmingham or, or through our National College Committee. And um, I advise them actually just get off the treadmill the NHS can be relentless. I know it's relentless everywhere, but um, we, we have a lot of competing demands. And uh, understand yourself, think about what sort of life you want, and just remember that you guys are going to work a lot longer. You're going to be healthier. And so you've got to prioritize yourself as well as your work. And I'm often saying, you know, build those really strong relationships in your life and your family is usually your most important relationship for you to fall back on. But do you know in Birmingham, we have Team Gastro and we have a really good supportive structure when we need it for having a bit of a downtime and having a bit of a a bit of a moan, as we call it in England, and just getting some things off our chest. And the Bispagan family is one that is really important to me as the recent president because um, we only have about 450 members. And, you know, we all know each other by first name and we often pick up the phone and say, do you know, I've got a problem. And you can pick up the phone and you know who they are and, and talk to them. So that's why it was so important in the pandemic that we started these weekly Zoom education series because it was an example a good chat and the bulletins that came out every week just to see how everyone was getting on. 
I'm a bit into soft skills for leaders. Uh, I make no apologies about that. And I'm encouraging our trainees. I say, when you become a leader, you are going to be a leader. Don't underestimate the corner of just being nice. Now, that might sound a little bit soft, but it's the picking out the person in the room that doesn't know anyone when you're all there in a clique and you're all chatting and going over and saying, hi, you know, my name's so-and-so. We haven't met before. I, I think that's so, so, so important. And I think finally, it's, I like this one, is see the good in people. So a lot of people say, well, just surround yourself with those people who are really positive, those people who are really smart like you. But, you know, I always say, do you know, we're not all perfect. Give people a chance. We all go through periods to, we're not doing so well in life. And so give time to those who need it most when you're a leader and you'll probably see them coming good because that's a worthwhile investment. I think that's probably all the advice I'm going to share with you at the moment but because i do go on a little bit (laughs) (laughs) that's great advice i I love the pieces about not only self-care but the attention to the sort of multiple circles of family that we have you know obviously our home families our work families and then our gi societies because i think as you have put out there in terms of how you feel that best began as a family and we certainly feel that NAS began as a family and leaning on those supports and those close colleagues and how we look out for each other, I think is really important. Dr. Prothero, thank you again for joining us today on Bow Sounds. This has been absolutely our pleasure to have you. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Well, thank you, Jason. And thank you, Jen. I really enjoyed it. It's been an absolute privilege. You're such a good host. So you've made me feel very welcome. And I'm very, very honoured to be part of this fantastic series. And I would just say to your listeners, check out bispagan.org.uk. You can join our weekly live education series. It's at one o'clock UK time. So it might be just as you're eating your breakfast. Maybe that's a good time to to watch it and uh, let's link up let's get this began and that's began a bit linking up and let's do some more things together because we can only learn from each other and i think we're very much alike it's a lovely to hear that you're the nasbegan family as well and it's actually pleasure to meet both of you Thanks again. This is this is great. So uh, we'll include a link to uh, Vespigan in the show notes for the episode as well. Oh, Thank for you. sure. So that was a great conversation we had with Dr. Prothero. We really appreciate her putting up with the time change to join us and share her expertise on this topic. Yeah, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell somebody about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. And you can also get there through www.naspigan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.